Chapter 19 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 19 A Monster Meeting. On the following day Barbicane, fearing that indiscreet questions might be put to Michel Ardan, was desirous of reducing the number of the audience to a few of the initiated, his own colleagues, for instance. He might as well have tried to check the falls of Niagara. He was compelled, therefore, to give up the idea, and to let his new friend run the chances of a public conference. The place chosen for this monster meeting was a vast plain situated in the rear of the town. In a few hours, thanks to the help of the shipping in port, an immense roofing of canvas was stretched over the parched prairie, and protected it from the burning rays of the sun. There three hundred thousand people braved for many hours the stifling heat while awaiting the arrival of the Frenchman. Of this crowd of spectators a first set could both see and hear, a second set saw badly and heard nothing at all, and as for the third— he could neither see nor hear anything at all. At three o'clock, Michel Ardan made his appearance, accompanied by the principal members of the gun club. He was supported on his right by President Barbicane, and on his left by J.T. Maston, more radiant than the midday sun and nearly as ruddy. Ardan mounted a platform, from the top of which his view extended over a sea of black hats. He exhibited not the slightest embarrassment. He was just as gay, familiar, and pleasant as if he were at home. To the hurrahs which greeted him he replied by a graceful bow. Then, waving his hand to request silence, he spoke in perfectly correct English as follows. "'Gentlemen, despite the very hot weather, I request your patience for a short time while I offer some explanations regarding the projects which seem to have so interested you.' I am neither an orator nor a man of science, and I had no idea of addressing you in public, but my friend Barbicane has told me that you would like to hear me, and I am quite at your service. Listen to me, therefore, with your six hundred thousand ears, and please to excuse the faults of the speaker. Now pray do not forget that you see before you a perfect ignoramus, whose ignorance goes so far that he cannot even understand the difficulties. It seemed to him that it was a matter quite simple, natural, and easy, to take one's place in a projectile and start for the moon. That journey must be undertaken sooner or later, and as for the mode of locomotion adopted, it follows simply the law of progress. Men began by walking on all fours, then, one fine day, on two feet then in a carriage, then in a stagecoach, and lastly by railway. Well, the projectile is the vehicle of the future, and the planets themselves are nothing else. Now, some of you, gentlemen, may imagine that the velocity we propose to impart to it is extravagant. It is nothing of the kind." All the stars exceeded in rapidity, and the earth herself is at this moment carrying us round the sun at three times as rapid a rate. 
and yet she is a mere lounger on the way, compared with many others of the planets. And her velocity is constantly decreasing. Is it not evident, then, I ask you, that there will some day appear velocities far greater than these, of which light or electricity will probably be the mechanical agent? Yes, gentlemen, continued the orator, in spite of the opinions of certain... Uh, narrow-minded people, who would shut up the human race upon this globe, as within some magic circle which it must never outstep, we shall one day travel to the moon, the planets, and the stars, with the same facility, rapidity, and certainty as we now make the voyage from Liverpool to New York. Distance is but a relative expression, and must end by being reduced to zero. The assembly, strongly predisposed as they were in favour of the French hero, were slightly staggered at this bold theory. Michel Ardin perceived the fact. "'Gentlemen,' he continued, with a pleasant smile, "'you do not seem quite convinced. Very good. Let us reason the matter out. Do you know how long it would take for an express train to reach the moon? Three hundred days. No more.' And what is that? The distance is no more than nine times the circumference of the earth, and there are no sailors or travellers of even moderate activity who have not made longer journeys than that in their lifetime. And now consider that I shall be only ninety-seven hours on my journey. Ah! I see you are reckoning that the moon is a long way off from the earth, and that one must think twice before making the experiment." What would you say, then, if we were talking of going to Neptune, which revolves at a distance of more than two thousand seven hundred and twenty millions of miles from the sun? And yet what is that, compared with the distance of the fixed stars, some of which, such as Arcturus, are at billions of miles distant from us? And then you talk of the distance which separates the planets from the sun— and there are people who affirm that such a thing as distance exists. Absurdity! Folly! Idiotic nonsense! Would you know what I think of our own solar universe? Shall I tell you my theory? It is very simple. In my opinion, the solar system is a solid homogeneous body. The planets which compose it are in actual contact with each other, and whatever space exists between them is nothing more than the space which separates the molecules of the densest metal, such as silver, iron, or platinum. I have the right, therefore, to affirm, and I repeat, with a conviction which must penetrate all your minds, distance is but an empty name. Distance does not really exist. Hurrah! cried one voice. Did it be said it was that of J.T. Maston? Distance does not exist! And overcome by the energy of his movements, he nearly fell from the platform to the ground. He just escaped a severe fall, which would have proved to him that distance was by no means an empty name. Gentlemen, resumed the orator, I repeat that the distance between the earth and her satellite is a mere trifle— and undeserving of serious consideration. I am convinced that before twenty years are over, 
one half of our earth will have paid a visit to the moon. Now, my worthy friends, if you have any question to put to me, you will, I fear, sadly embarrass a poor man like myself. Still, I will do my best to answer you. Up to this point, the president of the gun club had been satisfied with the turn which the discussion had assumed. It became now, however, desirable to divert Ardin from questions of a practical nature, with which he was doubtless far less conversant. Barbicane, therefore, hastened to get in a word, and began by asking his new friend whether he thought that the moon and the planets were inhabited. "'You put before me a great problem, my worthy president,' replied the orator, smiling. "'Still, men of great intelligence, such as Plutarch, Swedenborg, Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, and others have, if I mistake not, pronounced in the affirmative.' Looking at the question from the natural philosopher's point of view, I should say that nothing useless existed in the world, and, replying to your question by another, I should venture to assert that if these worlds are habitable, they either are, have been, or will be inhabited. No one could answer more logically or fairly, replied the President. The question then reverts to this. Are these worlds habitable? For my own part, I believe they are. For myself, I feel certain of it, said Michel Ardan. Nevertheless, retorted one of the audience, there are many arguments against the habitability of the worlds. The conditions of life must evidently be greatly modified upon the majority of them. To mention only the planets, we should be either broiled alive in some— or frozen to death in others, according as they are more or less removed from the sun. "'I regret,' replied Michel Ardin, "'that I have not the honour of personally knowing my contradictor, for I would have attempted to answer him. His objection has its merits, I admit, but I think we may successfully combat it, as well as all others which affect the habitability of the other worlds. If I were a natural philosopher,' I would tell him that if less of caloric were set in motion upon the planets which are nearest to the sun, and more, on the contrary, upon those which are farthest removed from it, this simple fact would alone suffice to equalize the heat, and to render the temperature of those worlds supportable by beings organized like ourselves. If I were a naturalist, I would tell him that, according to some illustrious men of science, Nature has furnished us with instances upon the earth of animals existing under very varying conditions of life, that fish respire in a medium fatal to other animals, that amphibious creatures possess a double existence very difficult of explanation, that certain denizens of the seas maintain life at enormous depths, and there support a pressure equal to that of fifty or sixty atmospheres without being crushed, that several aquatic insects, insensible to temperature, are met with equally among boiling springs and in the frozen plains of the polar sea. In fine, that we cannot help recognizing in nature a diversity of means of operation, oftentimes incomprehensible, but not the less real. If I were a chemist, 
I would tell him that the aerolites, bodies evidently formed exteriorly of our terrestrial globe, have, upon analysis, revealed indisputable traces of carbon, a substance which owes its origin solely to organized beings, and which, according to the experiments of Reichenbach, must necessarily itself have been endued with animation. And lastly, were I a theologian, I would tell him that the scheme of the divine redemption, according to St. Paul, seems to be applicable, not merely to the earth, but to all the celestial worlds. But, unfortunately, I am neither theologian, nor chemist, nor naturalist, nor philosopher. Therefore, in my absolute ignorance of the great laws which govern the universe, I confine myself to saying in reply, I do not know whether the worlds are inhabited or not, and since I do not know, I am going to see. Whether Michel Ardan's antagonist hazarded any further arguments or not, it is impossible to say, for the uproarious shouts of the crowd would not allow any expression of opinion to gain a hearing. On silence being restored, the triumphant orator contented himself with the, adding the following remarks. "'Gentlemen, you will observe that I have but slightly touched upon this great question. There is another, altogether different line of arguments in favour of the habitability of the stars, which I omit for the present. I only desire to call attention to one point. To those who maintain that the planets are not inhabited, one may reply, You might be perfectly in the right, if you could only show that the earth is the best possible world, spite of what Voltaire has said. She has but one satellite, while Jupiter, Uranus, Saturn, Neptune have each several, an advantage by no means to be despised. But that which renders our own globe so uncomfortable is the inclination of its axis to the plane of its orbit. Hence the inequality of days and nights, hence the disagreeable diversity of the seasons. On the surface of our unhappy spheroid, we are always either too hot or too cold. We are frozen in winter, broiled in summer. It is the planet of rheumatism, coughs, bronchitis, while on the surface of Jupiter, for example, where the axis is but slightly inclined, the inhabitants may enjoy uniform temperatures. It possesses zones of perpetual springs, summers, autumns, and winters. Every Jovian may choose for himself what climate he likes, and there spend the whole of his life in security from all variations of temperature. You will, I am sure, readily admit this superiority of Jupiter over our own planet, to say nothing of his years, which each equal twelve of ours, under such auspices and such marvellous conditions of existence, it appears to me that the inhabitants of so fortunate a world must be in every respect superior to ourselves. All we require, in order to attain to such perfection, is the mere trifle of having an axis of rotation less inclined to the plane of its orbit. Hurrah! roared an energetic voice. Let us unite our efforts, invent the necessary machines, 
and rectify the earth's axis. A thunder of applause followed this proposal, the author of which was, of course, no other than J. T. Maston. And, in all probability, if the truth must be told, if the Yankees could only have found a point of application for it, they would have constructed a lever capable of raising the earth and rectifying its axis. It was just this deficiency which baffled these daring mechanicians. End of chapter. Chapter 20 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 20 Attack and Repost. As soon as the excitement had subsided, the following words were heard uttered in a strong and determined voice. Now that the speaker has favoured us with so much imagination, would he be so good as to return to his subject, and give us a little practical view of the question? All eyes were directed towards the person who spoke. He was a little dried-up man of an active figure, with an American goatee beard, Profiting by the different movements in the crowd, he had managed by degrees to gain the front row of spectators. There, with arms crossed and stern gaze, he watched the hero of the meeting. After having put his question, he remained silent, and appeared to take no notice of the thousands of looks directed towards himself, nor of the murmur of disapprobation excited by his words. Meeting at first with no reply, he repeated his question with marked emphasis, adding, we are here to talk about the moon, and not about the earth. "'You are right, sir,' replied Michel Ardin. "'The discussion has become irregular. We will return to the moon.' "'Sir,' said the unknown, "'you pretend that our satellite is inhabited. Very good. But if selenites do exist, that race of beings assuredly must live without breathing, for, I warn you for your own sake—' There is not the smallest particle of air on the surface of the moon. At this remark, Ardin pushed up his shock of red hair. He saw that he was on the point of being involved in a struggle with this person upon the very gist of the whole question. He looked sternly at him in his turn, and said, Oh, so there is no air on the moon? And pray, if you are so good, who ventures to affirm that? The men of science. Really? Really? Sir, replied Michel, pleasantry apart, I have a profound respect for men of science who do possess science, but a profound contempt for men of science who do not. Do you know any who belong to the latter category? Decidedly. In France, there are some who maintain that, mathematically, a bird cannot possibly fly and others who demonstrate theoretically that fishes were never made to live in water. I have nothing to do with persons of that description, and I can quote, in support of my statement, names with which you cannot refuse deference to. Then, sir, you will sadly embarrass a poor ignorant, who, besides, asks nothing better than to learn. 
Why, then, do you introduce scientific questions if you have never studied them? asked the unknown, somewhat coarsely. For the reason that he is always brave who never suspects danger. I know nothing, it is true, but it is precisely my very weakness which constitutes my strength. Your weakness amounts to folly, retorted the unknown in a passion. All the better, replied our Frenchman, if it carries me up to the moon. Barbicane and his colleagues devoured with their eyes the intruder who had so boldly placed himself in antagonism to their enterprise. Nobody knew him, and the President, uneasy as to the result of so free a discussion, watched his new friend with some anxiety. The meeting began to be somewhat fidgety also, for the contest directed their attention to the dangers, if not the actual impossibilities, of the proposed expedition. "'Sir,' replied Ardent's antagonist, "'there are many and incontrovertible reasons which prove the absence of an atmosphere in the moon. I might say that, a priori, if one ever did exist, it must have been absorbed by the earth, but I prefer to bring forward indisputable facts.' "'Bring them forward, then, sir, as many as you please.' "'You know,' said the stranger, "'that when any luminous rays cross a medium such as the air, "'they are deflected out of the straight line. "'In other words, they undergo refraction. "'Well, when stars are occulted by the moon, "'their rays, on grazing the edge of her disk, "'exhibit not the least deviation, "'nor offer the slightest indication of refraction. "'It follows, therefore,' that the moon cannot be surrounded by an atmosphere. "'In point of fact,' replied Ardin, "'this is your chief, if not your only, argument, and a really scientific man might be puzzled to answer it. For myself, I will simply say that it is defective, because it assumes that the angular diameter of the moon has been completely determined, which is not the case. But let us proceed.' Tell me, my dear sir, do you admit the existence of volcanoes on the moon's surface? Extinct, yes. In activity, no. These volcanoes, however, were at one time in a state of activity? True. But as they furnished themselves the oxygen necessary for combustion, the mere fact of their eruption does not prove the presence of an atmosphere. Proceed again, then and let us set aside this class of arguments in order to come to direct observations. In 1715, the astronomers Louville and Halley, watching the eclipse of the 3rd May, remarked some very extraordinary scintillations. These jets of light, rapid in nature and of frequent recurrence, they attributed to thunderstorms generated in the lunar atmosphere. In 1715, replied the unknown, the astronomers Louville and Halley mistook for lunar phenomena some which were purely terrestrial, such as meteoric or other bodies which are generated in our own atmosphere. This was the scientific explanation at the time of the facts, and that is my answer now. On again, then, replied Ardin. Herschel, in 1787, observed a great number of luminous points on the moon's surface, did he not? 
Yes, but without offering any solution of them. Herschel himself never inferred from them the necessity of a lunar atmosphere, and I may add that Bohr and Merdler, the two great authorities upon the moon, are quite agreed as to the entire absence of air on its surface. A movement was here manifest among the assemblage who appeared to be growing excited by the arguments of this singular personage. "'Let us proceed,' replied Ardin, with perfect coolness, "'and come to one important fact. A skilful French astronomer, Monsieur Lossida, in watching the eclipse of July 18, 1860, proved that the horns of the solar crescent were rounded and truncated. Now, this appearance could only have been produced by a deviation of the solar rays in traversing the atmosphere of the moon. There is no other possible explanation of the fact. But is this established as a fact? Absolutely certain. A counter-movement here took place in favour of the hero of the meeting, whose opponent was now reduced to silence. Ardin resumed the conversation, and without exhibiting any exultation at the advantage he had gained, simply said, "'You see, then, my dear sir, we must not pronounce with absolute positiveness against the existence of an atmosphere in the moon. That atmosphere is, probably, of extreme rarity.' Nevertheless, at the present day, science generally admits that it exists. Not in the mountains, at all events, returned the unknown, unwilling to give in. No, but at the bottom of the valleys, and not exceeding a few hundred feet in height. In any case, you will do well to take every precaution, for the air will be terribly rarefied. My good sir! there will always be enough for a solitary individual. Besides, once arrived up there, I shall do my best to economize, and not to breathe except on grand occasions. A tremendous roar of laughter rang in the ears of the mysterious interlocutor, who glared fiercely round upon the assembly. Then, continued Ardin, with a careless air, since we are in accord regarding the presence of a certain atmosphere, we are forced to admit the presence of a certain quantity of water. This is a happy consequence for me. Moreover, my amiable contradictor, permit me to submit to you one further observation. We only know one side of the moon's disk, and if there is but little air on the face presented to us— it is possible that there is plenty on the one turned away from us. And for what reason? Because the moon, under the action of the earth's attraction, has assumed the form of an egg, which we look at from the smaller end. Hence it follows, by Haussan's calculations, that its centre of gravity is situated in the other hemisphere. Hence it results that the great mass of air and water— must have been drawn away to the other face of our satellite during the first days of its creation. "'Pure fancies!' cried the unknown. "'No, pure theories, which are based upon the laws of mechanics, and it seems difficult to me to refute them. I appeal then to this meeting, and I put it to them whether life, such as exists upon the earth, is possible on the surface of the moon?' Three hundred thousand auditors at once applauded the proposition. 
Ardan's opponent tried to get in another word, but he could not obtain a hearing. Cries and menaces fell upon him like hail. "'Enough! Enough!' cried some. "'Drive the intruder off!' shouted others. "'Turn him out!' roared the exasperated crowd. But he, holding firmly on to the platform, did not budge an inch, and let the storm pass on, which would soon have assumed formidable proportions if Michel Ardin had not quieted it by a gesture. He was too chivalrous to abandon his opponent in an apparent extremity. "'You wish to say a few more words?' he asked in a pleasant voice. "'Yes, a thousand, or rather no, only one. If you persevere in your enterprise, you must be a very rash person. How can you treat me as such, me, who have demanded a cylindro-conical projectile, in order to prevent turning round and round on my way like a squirrel? But, unhappy man, the dreadful recoil will smash you to pieces at your starting. My dear contradictor, you have just put your finger upon the true and the only difficulty. Nevertheless, I have too good an opinion of the industrial genius of the Americans not to believe that they will succeed in overcoming it. But the heat developed by the rapidity of the projectile in crossing the strata of air. Oh, the walls are thick, and I shall soon have crossed the atmosphere. But victuals and water? I have calculated for a twelve months' supply, and I shall be only four days on the journey. But for air to breathe on the road? I shall make it by chemical process. But your fall on the moon, supposing you ever reach it? It will be six times less dangerous than a sudden fall upon the earth, because the weight will be only one-sixth as great on the surface of the moon. Still it will be enough to smash you like glass. What is there to prevent my retarding the shock by means of rockets conveniently placed, and lighted at the right moment? But, after all, supposing all difficulties surmounted, all obstacles removed, supposing everything combined to favor you, and granting that you may arrive safe and sound in the moon, how will you come back? I am not coming back. At this reply, almost sublime in its very simplicity, the assembly became silent. But its silence was more eloquent than could have been its cries of enthusiasm. The unknown profited by the opportunity and once more protested. You will inevitably kill yourself, he cried, and your death will be that of a madman, useless even to science. Go on, my dear unknown, for truly your prophecies are most agreeable. It really is too much, cried Michel Ardin's adversary. I do not know why I should continue so frivolous a discussion. Please yourself about this insane expedition. We need not trouble ourselves about you. Pray don't stand upon ceremony. No, another person is responsible for your act. Who, may I ask? demanded Michel Ardin in an imperious tone. The ignoramus who organized this equally absurd and impossible experiment. The attack was direct. Barbicane, ever since the interference of the unknown, had been making fearful efforts of self-control, 
Now, however, seeing himself directly attacked, he could restrain himself no longer. He rose suddenly, and was rushing upon the enemy who thus braved him to the face, when all at once he found himself separated from him. The platform was lifted by a hundred strong arms, and the president of the gun-club shared with Michel Ardin triumphal honours. The shield was heavy, but the bearers came in continuous relays, disputing, struggling, even fighting among themselves in their eagerness to lend their shoulders to this demonstration. However, the unknown had not profited by the tumult to quit his post. Besides, he could not have done it in the midst of that compact crowd. There he held on in the front row with crossed arms, glaring at President Barbicane. The shouts of the immense crowd continued at their highest pitch throughout this triumphant march. Michel Ardin took it all with evident pleasure. His face gleamed with delight. Several times the platform seemed seized with pitching and rolling like a weather-beaten ship. But the two heroes of the meeting had good sea-legs. They never stumbled, and their vessel arrived without dues at the port of Tampa Town. Michel Ardin managed fortunately to escape from the last embraces of his vigorous admirers. He made for the Hotel Franklin, quickly gained his chamber, and slid under the bedclothes, while an army of a hundred thousand men kept watch under his windows. During this time a scene, short, grave, and decisive, took place between the mysterious personage and the president of the gun-club. Barbicane, free at last, had gone straight at his adversary. "'Come,' he said shortly. The other followed him on to the quay, and the two presently found themselves alone at the entrance of an open wharf on Jones Fall. The two enemies, still mutually unknown, gazed at each other. "'Who are you?' asked Barbicane. "'Captain Nicholl!' "'So I suspected.' Hitherto chance has never thrown you in my way. I am come for that purpose. You have insulted me. Publicly! And you will answer to me for this insult? At this very moment. No. I desire that all that passes between us shall be secret. There is a wood, situated three miles from Tampa, the wood of Skirznaw. Do you know it? I know it. Will you be so good as to enter it to-morrow morning at five o'clock on one side? Yes, if you will enter at the other side at the same hour. And you will not forget your rifle, said Barbicane. No more than you will forget yours, replied Nicholl. These words having been coldly spoken, the president of the gun-club and the captain parted. Barbicane returned to his lodging, but instead of snatching a few hours of repose, he passed the night in endeavouring to discover a means of evading the recoil of the projectile, and resolving the difficult problem proposed by Michel Ardin during the discussion at the meeting. End of chapter Chapter 21 of From the Earth to the Moon this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, 
of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 21 How a Frenchman Manages an Affair. While the contract of this duel was being discussed by the president and the captain, this dreadful, savage duel, in which each adversary became a man-hunter, Michel Ardin was resting from the fatigues of his triumph. Resting is hardly an appropriate expression, for American beds rival marble or granite tables for hardness. Ardan was sleeping then, badly enough, tossing about between the cloths which served him for sheets, and he was dreaming of making a more comfortable couch in his projectile when a frightful noise disturbed his dreams. Thundering blows shook his door. They seemed to be caused by some iron instrument. A great deal of loud talking was distinguishable in this racket, which was rather too early in the morning. "'Open the door!' someone shrieked. "'For heaven's sake!' Ardan saw no reason for complying with the demand so roughly expressed. However, he got up and opened the door, just as it was giving way before the blows of this determined visitor. The secretary of the gun club burst into the room. A bomb could not have made more noise or have entered the room with less ceremony. "'Last night!' cried J. T. Maston, ex abrupto. Our president was publicly insulted during the meeting. He provoked his adversary, who was none other than Captain Nicholl. They are fighting this morning in the wood of Skurznaw. I heard all particulars from the mouth of Barbicane himself. If he is killed, then our scheme is at end. We must prevent this duel, and one man alone has enough influence over Barbicane to stop him, and that man is Michel Ardan. While J. T. Maston was speaking, Michel Ardan, without interrupting him, had hastily put on his clothes, and in less than two minutes the two friends were making for the suburbs of Tampa Town with rapid strides. It was during this walk that Maston told Ardan the state of the case. He told him the real causes of the hostility between Barbicane and Nicholl, how it was of old date, and why, thanks to unknown friends, the president and the captain had, as yet, never met face to face. He added that it arose simply from a rivalry between iron plates and shot, and finally that the scene at the meeting was only the long-wished-for opportunity for Nicholl to pay off an old grudge. Nothing is more dreadful than private duels in America. The two adversaries attack each other like wild beasts— then it is that they might well covet those wonderful properties of the Indians of the prairies, their quick intelligence, their ingenious cunning, their scent of the enemy. A single mistake, a moment's hesitation, a single false step may cause death. On these occasions Yankees are often accompanied by their dogs and keep up the struggle for hours. "'What demons you are!' cried Michel Ardin when his companion had depicted this scene to him with much energy. "'Yes, we are,' replied J.T. modestly. "'But we had better make haste.' Though Michel Ardin and he had crossed the plain still wet with dew, and had taken the shortest route over creeks and rice-fields, they could not reach Skurznaw under five hours and a half. Barbicane must have passed the border half an hour ago. There was an old bushman working there, 
occupied in selling faggots from trees that had been levelled by his axe. Maston ran toward him, saying, "'Have you seen a man go into the wood, armed with a rifle? Barbicane, the president, my best friend?' The worthy secretary of the gun club thought that his president must be known by all the world, but the bushman did not seem to understand him. "'A hunter?' said Ardin. "'A hunter, yes,' replied the bushman. "'Long ago?' "'About an hour.' "'Too late!' cried Maston. "'Have you heard any gunshots?' asked Ardin. "'No.' "'Not one?' "'Not one.' That hunter did not look as if he knew how to hunt. "'What is to be done?' said Maston. "'We must go into the wood, at the risk of getting a ball which is not intended for us.' "'Ah!' cried Maston, in a tone which could not be mistaken. "'I would rather have twenty balls in my own head than one in Barbicane's.' "'Forward, then,' said Ardin, pressing his companion's hand. A few moments later the two friends had disappeared in the copse. It was a dense thicket, in which rose huge cypresses, sycamores, tulip-trees, olives, tamarinds, oaks, and magnolias. These different trees had interwoven their branches into an inextricable maze, through which the eye could not penetrate. Michel Ardin and Maston walked side by side in silence through the tall grass, cutting themselves a path through the strong creepers, casting curious glances on the bushes, and momentarily expecting to hear the sound of rifles. As for the traces which Barbicane ought to have left of his passage through the wood, there was not a vestige of them visible, so they followed the barely perceptible paths along which Indians had tracked some enemy, and which the dense foliage darkly overshadowed. After an hour spent in vain pursuit, the two stopped in intensified anxiety. "'It must be all over,' said Maston, discouraged. "'A man like Barbicane would not dodge with his enemy, or ensnare him, would not even maneuver. He is too open, too brave. He has gone straight ahead, right into the danger, and doubtless far enough from the bushman for the wind to prevent his hearing the report of the rifles.' "'But surely,' replied Michel Ardin, "'since we entered the wood we should have heard.' "'And what if we came too late?' cried Maston, in tones of despair. For once, Ardin had no reply to make, he and Maston resuming their walk in silence. From time to time, indeed, they raised great shouts, calling alternately Barbicane and Nickel, neither of whom, however, answered their cries. Only the birds, awakened by the sound, flew past them, and disappeared among the branches, while some frightened deer fled precipitately before them. For another hour their search was continued. The greater part of the wood had been explored. There was nothing to reveal the presence of the combatants. The information of the bushman was, after all, doubtful, and Ardin was about to propose their abandoning this useless pursuit, when all at once Maston stopped. "'Hush!' said he. "'There is someone down there.' "'Someone?' repeated Michel Ardin. "'Yes, a man. He seems motionless. His rifle is not in his hands. What can he be doing?' "'But can you recognize him?' asked Ardin, whose short sight was of little use to him in such circumstances. 
"'Yes, yes, he is turning towards us,' answered Maston. "'And it is?' "'Captain Nicholl.' "'Nicholl!' cried Michel Ardin, feeling a terrible pang of grief. "'Nicholl unarmed! He has then no longer any fear of his adversary!' "'Let us go to him,' said Michel Ardin, "'and find out the truth.' But he and his companion had barely taken fifty steps when they paused to examine the captain more attentively. They expected to find a bloodthirsty man happy in his revenge. On seeing him, they remained stupefied. A net, composed of very fine meshes, hung between two enormous tulip-trees, and in the midst of this snare, with its wings entangled, was a poor little bird, uttering pitiful cries, while it vainly struggled to escape. The bird-catcher who had laid this snare was no human being, but a venomous spider, peculiar to that country, as large as a pigeon's egg, and armed with enormous claws. The hideous creature, instead of rushing on its prey, had beaten a sudden retreat and taken refuge in the upper branches of the tulip-tree, for a formidable enemy menaced its stronghold. Here, then, was Nicol, his gun on the ground, forgetful of danger, trying, if possible, to save the victim from its cobweb prison. At last it was accomplished, and the little bird flew joyfully away and disappeared. Nicol lovingly watched its flight when he heard these words pronounced by a voice full of emotion. "'You are indeed a brave man!' He turned. Michel Ardan was before him, repeating in a different tone, "'And a kind-hearted one!' "'Michel Ardan!' cried the captain. "'Why are you here?' "'To press your hand, Nicol, and to prevent you from either killing Barbicane or being killed by him.' "'Barbicane!' returned the captain. "'I have been looking for him for the last two hours in vain. Where is he hiding?' "'Nicol!' said Michel Ardan. This is not courteous. We ought always to treat an adversary with respect. Rest assured, if Barbicane is still alive we shall find him all the more easily, because if he has not, like you, been amusing himself with freeing oppressed birds, he must be looking for you. When we have found him, Michel Ardan tells you this, there will be no duel between you. "'Between President Barbicane and myself,' gravely replied Nicol, "'there is a rivalry which the death of one of us—' "'Pooh, pooh!' said Ardan. "'Brave fellows like you, indeed! You shall not fight!' "'I will fight, sir!' "'No!' "'Captain,' said J. T. Maston, with much feeling, "'I am a friend of the President's, his alter ego, his second self.' If you really must kill someone, shoot me. It will do just as well. Sir, Nicol replied, seizing his rifle convulsively, these jokes— Our friend Maston is not joking, replied Ardan. I fully understand his idea of being killed himself in order to save his friend. But neither he nor Barbicane will fall before the balls of Captain Nicol. Indeed, I have so attractive a proposal to make to the two rivals that both will be eager to accept it. "'What is it?' asked Nicol with manifest incredulity. "'Patience,' 
exclaimed Ardin, I can only reveal it in the presence of Barbicane. Let us go in search of him, then, cried the captain. The three men started off at once, the captain having discharged his rifle, threw it over his shoulder, and advanced in silence. Another half-hour passed, and the pursuit was still fruitless. Maston was oppressed by sinister forebodings. He looked fiercely at Nicholl, asking himself whether the captain's vengeance had been already satisfied, and the unfortunate Barbicane shot was perhaps lying dead on some bloody track. The same thought seemed to occur to Ardin. Both were casting inquiring glances on Nicholl, when suddenly Maston paused. The motionless figure of a man, leaning against a gigantic catalpa twenty feet off, appeared, half-veiled by the foliage. "'It is he!' said Maston. Barbicane never moved. Ardin looked at the captain, but he did not wince. Ardin went forward crying, Barbicane! Barbicane! No answer. Ardin rushed towards his friend, but in the act of seizing his arms, he stopped short and uttered a cry of surprise. Barbicane, pencil in hand, was tracing geometrical figures in a memorandum book, whilst his unloaded rifle lay beside him on the ground. Absorbed in his studies, Barbicane, in his turn forgetful of the duel, had seen and heard nothing. When Ardin took his hand, he looked up and stared at his visitor in astonishment. "'Ah, it is you!' he cried at last. "'I have found it, my friend! I have found it!' "'What?' "'My plan!' "'What plan?' "'The plan for counteracting the effect of the shock at the departure of the projectile.' "'Indeed!' said Michel Ardin, looking at the captain out of the corner of his eye. "'Yes, water! Simply water, which will act as a spring! "'Ah, Maston!' cried Barbicane. "'You here also?' "'Himself,' replied Ardin. "'And permit me to introduce to you at the same time the worthy Captain Nicholl.' "'Nicholl!' cried Barbicane, who jumped up at once. "'Pardon me, Captain, I had quite forgotten. I am ready.' Michel Ardin interfered, without giving the two enemies time to say anything more. "'Thank heaven,' said he. "'It is a happy thing that brave men like you two did not meet sooner. We should now have been mourning for one or other of you. But, thanks to Providence, which has interfered, there is now no further cause for alarm.' When one forgets his anger in mechanics or in cobwebs, it is a sign that the anger is not dangerous. Michel Ardin then told the president how the captain had been found occupied. "'I put it to you now,' said he, in conclusion, "'are two such good fellows as you are made on purpose to smash each other's skulls with shot?' There was in the situation something of the ridiculous, something quite unexpected. Michel Ardin saw this, and determined to effect a reconciliation. "'My good friends,' said he, with his most bewitching smile, "'this is nothing but a misunderstanding. Nothing more. Well, to prove that it is all over between you, accept frankly the proposal I am going to make to you.' "'Make it,' said Nicholl. 
our friend Barbicane believes that his projectile will go straight to the moon? Yes, certainly, replied the president. And our friend Nicol is persuaded it will fall back upon the earth? I am certain of it, cried the captain. Good, said Ardin. I cannot pretend to make you agree, but I suggest this. Go with me, and so see whether we are stopped on our journey. What? exclaimed J. T. Maston, stupefied. The two rivals, on this sudden proposal, looked steadily at each other. Barbicane waited for the captain's answer. Nicol watched for the decision of the president. Well, said Michel, there is now no fear of the shock. Done, cried Barbicane. But quickly as he pronounced the word, he was not before Nicol. Hurrah! Bravo! Hip, hip, hurrah! cried Michel, giving a hand to each of the late adversaries. Now that it is all settled, my friends, allow me to treat you after French fashion. Let us be off to breakfast. End of chapter. Chapter 22 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 22 The New Citizen of the United States. That same day all America heard of the affair of Captain Nicholl and President Barbicane, as well as its singular denouement. From that day forth, Michel Ardin had not one moment's rest. Deputations from all corners of the Union harassed him without cessation or intermission. He was compelled to receive them all, whether he would or no. How many hands he shook, how many people he was hail-fellow-well-met with, it is impossible to guess. Such a triumphal result would have intoxicated any other man, but he managed to keep himself in a state of delightful semi-tipsiness. Among the deputations of all kinds which assailed him, that of the lunatics, were careful not to forget what they owed to the future conqueror of the moon. One day, certain of these poor people, so numerous in America, came to call upon him, and requested permission to return with him to their native country. "'Singular hallucination,' said he to Barbicane, after having dismissed the deputation with promises to convey numbers of messages to friends in the moon. "'Do you believe in the influence of the moon upon distempers?' "'Scarcely.' "'No more do I, despite some remarkable recorded facts of history.' For instance, during an epidemic in 1693, a large number of persons died at the very moment of an eclipse. The celebrated Bacon always fainted during an eclipse. Charles the Sixth relapsed six times into madness during the year 1399, sometimes during the new, sometimes during the full moon. Gall observed that insane persons underwent an accession of their disorder twice in every month, at the epochs of new and full moon. In fact, numerous observations made upon fevers, 
somnambulisms and other human maladies seem to prove that the moon does exercise some mysterious influence upon man. "'But the how and the wherefore?' asked Barbicane. "'Well, I can only give you the answer which Arago borrowed from Plutarch, which is nineteen centuries old. Perhaps the stories are not true.' In the height of his triumph, Michel Ardan had to encounter all the annoyances incidental to a man of celebrity. Managers of entertainments wanted to exhibit him. Barnum offered him a million dollars to make a tour of the United States in his show. As for his photographs, they were sold of all sizes, and his portrait taken in every imaginable posture. More than half a million copies were disposed of in an incredibly short space of time. But it was not only the men who paid him homage, but the women also. He might have married well a hundred times over, if he had been willing to settle in life. The old maids in particular, of forty years and upwards, and dry in proportion, devoured his photographs day and night. They would have married him by hundreds even if he had imposed upon them the condition of accompanying him into space. He had, however, no intention of transplanting a race of Franco-Americans upon the surface of the moon. He therefore declined all offers. As soon as he could withdraw from these somewhat embarrassing demonstrations, he went, accompanied by his friends, to pay a visit to the Columbiad, he was highly gratified by his inspection, and made the descent to the bottom of the tube of this gigantic machine, which was presently to launch him to the regions of the moon. It is necessary here to mention a proposal of J. T. Maston's. When the secretary of the gun club found that Barbicane and Nicol accepted the proposal of Michel Ardan, he determined to join them, and make one of a snug party of four. So one day he determined to be admitted as one of the travellers. Barbicane, paid at having to refuse him, gave him clearly to understand that the projectile could not possibly contain so many passengers. Maston, in despair, went in search of Michel Ardan, who counselled him to resign himself to the situation, adding one or two arguments ad hominem. "'You see, old fellow,' he said, you must not take what I say in bad part, but really, between ourselves, you are in too incomplete a condition to appear in the moon. Incomplete! shrieked the valiant invalid. Well, yes, my dear fellow, imagine our meeting some of the inhabitants up there. Would you like to give them such a melancholy notion of what goes on down here? To teach them what war is? to inform them that we employ our time chiefly in devouring each other, in smashing arms and legs, and that too on a globe which is capable of supporting a hundred billions of inhabitants, and which actually does contain nearly two hundred millions? Why, my worthy friend, we should have to turn you out of doors. But still, if you arrive there in pieces, you will be as incomplete as I am. Unquestionably, replied Michel Ardan, but we shall not. 
In fact, a preparatory experiment, tried on the 18th October, had yielded the best results and caused the most well-granted hopes of success. Barbicane, desirous of obtaining some notion of the effect of the shock at the moment of the projectile's departure, had procured a 38-inch mortar from the arsenal of Pensacola. He had this placed on the bank of Hillisborough Roads, in order that the shell might fall back into the sea, and the shock be thereby destroyed. His object was to ascertain the extent of the shock of departure, and not that of the return. A hollow projectile had been prepared for this curious experiment. A thick padding fastened upon a kind of elastic network, made of the best steel, lined the inside of the walls. It was a veritable nest, most carefully wadded. "'What a pity I can't find room in there,' said J. T. Maston, regretting that his height did not allow of his trying the adventure. Within this shell was shut up a large cat and a squirrel belonging to J. T. Maston, and of which he was particularly fond. They were desirous, however, of ascertaining how this little animal— least of all others subject to giddiness, would endure this experimental voyage. The mortar was charged with 160 pounds of powder, and the shell placed in the chamber. On being fired, the projectile rose with great velocity, described a majestic parabola, attained a height of about a thousand feet, and with a graceful curve, descended in the midst of the vessels that lay there at anchor. Without a moment's loss of time, a small boat put off in the direction of its fall. Some active divers plunged into the water and attached ropes to the handles of the shell, which was quickly dragged on board. Five minutes did not elapse between the moment of enclosing the animals and that of unscrewing the cover-lid of their prison. Ardin, Barbicane, Maston, and Nicholl were present on board the boat, and assisted at the operation with an interest that may be readily comprehended. Hardly had the shell been opened when the cat leaped out, slightly bruised but full of life, and exhibiting no signs whatever of having made an aerial expedition. No trace, however, of the squirrel could be discovered. The truth at last became apparent. The cat had eaten its fellow-traveller. J. T. Maston grieved much for the loss of his poor squirrel, and proposed to add its case to that of other martyrs to science. After this experiment, all hesitation, all fear, disappeared. Besides, Barbicane's plans would ensure greater perfection for his projectile, and go far to annihilate altogether the effects of the shock. Nothing now remained but to go. Two days later, Michel Ardant received a message from the President of the United States, an honour of which he showed himself especially sensible. After the example of his illustrious fellow-countryman, the Marquis de Lafayette, the government had decreed to him the title of Citizen of the United States of America. End of chapter